0: Welcome, and thank you for joining us for another episode of KPMG's Inside International Tax, a podcast devoted to recent developments, observations, and trends related to U.S. international tax. I'm your host, Gary Scanlon, a principal in KPMG's Washington National Tax International Tax Practice. On Friday, the EU Council held an Economic and Financial Affairs Council, or Ecofin meeting. At which it was anticipated that poland may finally drop its objection to the eu directive implementing pillar two on this episode of the podcast we will update you on the outcome of that meeting as well as continue our exploration on how the pillar two global anti-base erosion or globe rules could impact us multinationals for this discussion i am delighted to be joined by Two of the firm's deep thinkers on BEPS 2.0, Kevin Brogan and Marcus Healand. Kevin is a principal in KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice, and Marcus is a managing director in KPMG's Economic Valuation Services Practice. Before rejoining KPMG, Marcus served as an advisor at the OECD on BEPS 2.0. Kevin and Marcus, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Gary. Thank you,
0: Gary. Before we get into a more technical discussion of GLOBE, all eyes have been on Brussels and the ECOFIN meeting. In December of last year, the EU issued a draft directive describing the rules that EU countries would need to follow in incorporating the GLOBE rules into their own domestic law. An EU directive generally requires unanimity And after months of negotiating, only a single objector remained, Poland. Marcus, what happened at Friday's ECOFIN meeting? Did Poland drop its objection?
1: For additional context, uh, this ECOFIN meeting was particularly important because it was the last scheduled meeting under the French presidency, And France has been one of the primary sponsors of Pillar 2, and they were working very hard to get the directive approved under their watch. And so the entire, I think, international tax community was keenly watching the outcome of this meeting to see if the EU would be able to successfully adopt the directive. The outcome of the meeting was that Poland did, uh, in fact, lift its previous reservations, which would seemingly unlock things. However, the EU member states were unable to reach political agreement on the directive due to a change in position by Hungary, which decided to veto the proposal today despite having agreed to support the initiative at previous ECOFIN meetings. The Hungarian delegation noted that it was no longer in a position to support the proposal at this time, citing concerns regarding the economic consequences of introducing Pillar 2 – in the context of the geopolitical situation in the region. Furthermore, Hungary noted the need for further work on substantial and procedural questions related to the new rules, and also highlighted the expected delay in the Pillar 1 implementation timeline. Some observers have speculated that Hungary may also be using its veto power over Pillar 2 to improve its position in unrelated files, including the disbursement of EU COVID-related funds and also EU common funds. So Gary, no white smoke in the EU today. So
0: where does that put us with respect to implementation in the EU and elsewhere?
1: The chair of today's meeting was the French finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, as well as the EU tax commissioner. And, And both of them noted that they remained optimistic that The concerns raised by Hungary at today's meeting can be resolved and the political agreement can be reached before the end of the French presidency, which is the 30th of June, which is, by my math, 13 days from today. If the French presidency is not able to facilitate political agreement on the general approach to Pillar 2 before the end of June, I expect that that Pillar 2 will likely be added to the agenda of the first Ecofin meeting under the Czech presidency which is scheduled for the 12th of July. My personal view is that despite the drama today in the EU, I think the Pillar 2 Directive will eventually be approved, probably under the Czech presidency in in around Q3 of this year. And Gary, I know you asked about the EU, but I should briefly note an important recent development in the UK. The UK initially contemplated implementing the Pillar 2 Income Inclusion Rule to be effective in April of 2023, but this week, the UK announced that it would defer its implementation and effective date to tax periods beginning on or after December 31st of 2023. This was a welcome development because the UK is a common holding jurisdiction, and many taxpayers were concerned that if the UK income inclusion rule came into effect in April of 2023, that could lead to significant compliance obligations in a very short period of time. So the delay of the uk income inclusion rule gives taxpayers more time to prepare
0: let's turn our attention to the united states the build back better actor bbba would have reshaped guilty to make it look like a sibling too but certainly not an identical twin of globe the bbba would have changed guilty to make it a country by country determination Rather than permitting blending across jurisdictions. But guilty would still be computed based on US tax principles as it is now, rather than on financial accounting as under Pillar 2. Even before the BBBA, there was some discussion as to whether guilty would be accepted as a qualifying IAR. The BBBA, if not completely dead, is only slightly alive. Kevin, what is the relevance of being a qualifying IAR under the pillar two rules? And is it clear that
2: an unreformed guilty is not a qualifying IAR? Thanks, well, I'll start with your second question because I think it's a little bit easier. First, I would say, yes, it's, it's pretty clear that without being reformed, currently existing guilty would not be a qualified IAR. And I based my answer on that, it's just too far removed from what kind of I would call the integral parts of pillar two, namely that you test whether or not there's been a minimum level of taxation on an entity's income based on a jurisdiction by jurisdiction approach. And guilty fall short here by being done on an aggregate approach because we're allowed to have worldwide blending of our foreign tax credits. The second key element involves what the minimum level of taxation we're looking for is. So the pillar two rate has been set at 15% as the proposed guilty rate under the BBBA. Now, currently, the guilty rate, when you take into account the Section 250 deduction, is only 10.5%. So, in addition to not being computed on a jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis, current guilty also doesn't subject foreign earnings to a high enough rate of tax. So, Gary, getting back to your first question, what's at stake as to whether or not guilty is treated as a qualified IAR not under the Pillar 2 rules? I think it really boils down to how and when guilty taxes are taken into account in the Pillar 2 calculation. So, if guilty is a qualified IAR, then that would mean for a US multinational that no other jurisdiction would apply its IAR under the Pillar 2 rules because you generally defer to the ultimate parent entity's income inclusion rule where it has one. So no other IAR would generally operate on foreign jurisdiction income of a U.S. multinational, and instead that job would fall on guilty to trigger an inclusion of the income in those jurisdictions and make sure it was subject to tax at a minimum rate the impact of guilty being a qualified ir does not change the potential application of the utpr to united states income that is because guilty does not actually only subjects a us multinationals foreign income to tax it does nothing to ensure that there's a minimum rate of tax met on us earned income so the utpr could apply to us earnings in either scenario in the scenario where guilty is not a qualified IR, so what looks like our currently most likely scenario, what do we make of Guilty? And the answer seems to be that other jurisdictions within a given structure, when they apply their own Pillar 2 qualified IR, will be looking around and determining whether operations in foreign jurisdictions are subject to 15% rate of tax. And they won't be looking just on taxes paid to that country, but they can also look at shareholder taxes paid under a qualified CFC regime, like our subpart F regime, to determine whether or not that 15% hurdle has been met. So if GILTI is not a qualified IAR, it appears, and we've gotten public comments in this direction, that guilty should be viewed as a CFC type tax, and therefore, guilty taxes would be allocated to the foreign uh, CFC's earnings in each country, and therefore might help those earnings meet the 15% hurdle and not further be subject to a qualified IAR by another parent entity in the structure.
0: As I noted before, the QMDTT was introduced in the model rules just about six months ago. While a late arriver, it may end up having an extremely significant role in collecting globe taxes. Indeed, it seems that otherwise low tax countries whose companies would otherwise be subject to another country's IAR or UTPR would be incentivized to adopt its own QMDTT. If someone is going to collect a top-up tax from our companies, they might say, why not us? Further, since the QMDTT comes before the IIR and UTPR, it could ultimately be the case that most of the globe tax worldwide will end up being collected by these minimum taxes. Indeed, as the significance of the QMDTT starts dawning on taxpayers, there's been a lot of chatter on how guilty and the QMDTT might play together in the same sandbox. Let's say that USP, a U.S. corporation, owns Keiko, a Cayman corporation, and the Cayman Islands adopts a QMDTT. Kevin, if guilty is not a qualifying IR, how might you calculate the guilty owed by USP and the QMDTT owed by Keiko? Which comes first?
2: So that is a very tricky question where I think the jury is still out. And to give you a bit more color on that, when you calculate an ETR for the IAR UTPR. So the general model two rules, you take into account CFC type taxes in your numerator. So, we know that if we were talking about an IAR or UTPR applying in respect of Keiko earnings, we know that guilty taxes would be in the numerator of that calculation. And if guilty was high enough such that Keiko was taxed at 15%, no other IAR would apply. So, on the one hand, the QDMTT is supposed to look like the Model 2. IAR and UTPR basically follow the model rules. So that would initially seem to suggest that perhaps a QDMTT should also take into account guilty. And if guilty resulted in CAICO's earnings being taxed at 15%, there would no be application of the Cayman Islands QDMTT. However, it's not at all required under the rules, in any sort of clear way at least, that the QDMTT must defer to a CFC type tax like guilty that is more on active earnings rather than maybe just passive earnings. And so there are arguments out there that Cayman Islands should have first dibs on taxing operations in its country over any sort of IAR or even perhaps guilty if it's viewed as a CFC tax on on business earnings. And so, it's possible that the CACO QDMTT would be computed without taking into account guilty taxes paid. And if we get in that scenario, I think we hope that it'll be true, that no regulations will come out that will change what we think is currently the result, that the QDMTT would generally be a creditable tax. Because if the QDMTT turns out to not Take into account guilty in doing the ETR calculation, then it will be important to have a foreign tax credit in respect of QDMTT taxes paid so that guilty doesn't represent a form of double taxation on those same earnings. But like I said, very much up in the air at this point. In a previous episode of the podcast
0: entitled The Globe Rules, Bye Bye American Pie. We had discussed the negative impact that the Globe Rules could have on US multinationals, particularly ones that benefit from tax incentive regimes in the US, such as R&D tax credits, FIDI, et cetera. Marcus, can you refresh our listeners on this concern?
1: Sure. In general, tax incentives like R&D credits simply reduce current year tax expense. And so they drive down the effective tax rate and potentially result in top-up tax if they're material enough. One exception to that is in the case of refundable tax credits. If a credit is structured in a way that is refundable as cash or cash equivalent within four years, it is considered to be a qualified refundable tax credit. And the consequence of that is that it gets more friendly treatment under Pillar 2. In particular, qualified refundable tax credits are treated as an increase to income, rather than a reduction to tax. You may have to stare at a spreadsheet to see this, but essentially getting above the line treatment produces a higher effective tax rate. The problem is is that precious few U.S. credits are structured as refundable. And so this friendly treatment is not available for most U.S. incentives. For example, the U.S. R&D credit is not refundable. And so we're left with adverse results for most U.S. tax incentives, including R&D credits and fifty deductions. And this has created a political stir because these incentives generally have bipartisan support. And I think it is offensive to many that Pillar 2 could at least partially restrict Congress's ability to set tax policy in these areas.
0: Has there been any recent developments in this regard Uh, Has the Globe commentary, for instance, alleviated any of these concerns?
1: The commentary, no, not really. But there has been recent statements from the OECD secretariat that are helpful for certain U.S. tax incentives. In that regard, one particular tax incentive that has received a lot of attention recently is the U.S. low-income housing credit. These credits are uh, important for banks and insurance companies, for example. And the way that these are structured is unique because they typically come through complex structures, uh, commonly flow through investment entities. As the audience will be familiar, Pillar 2 generally defers to financial accounting concepts for measuring income and tax. And under U.S. Gap, low-income housing investment entities are typically accounted for or recorded under the equity method of accounting or similar accounting conventions. In measuring income, article three of the pillar two rules exclude equity gain or loss, and that includes profit or loss in respect of an ownership interest that is included under the equity method of accounting. And then in measuring tax, article four commensurately reduces cover tax by the amount of current tax expense with respect to income that is excluded from the Pillar 2 income measurement. There's some uncertainty about how a low-income housing credit should be treated in light of those aforementioned rules. The income and loss is excluded, but what about the credit itself? The OECD hosted a public consultation meeting in April, and that was mostly uneventful until the last 30 minutes or so where the Secretariat hosted a a question-and-answer session. One of the questions that they addressed was this item, and the Secretariat shared its view that the way that that relevant rule in Article 4 should be interpreted is that all income tax consequences of holding the investment entity should be backed out, uh, and that would seem to include the credit. So if the entity is accounted for under the equity method of accounting because the income is excluded, this interpretation would seem to also allow for the exclusion of the impact of the credit. You know, so this interpretation, if accepted by the full inclusive framework, would seem to help protect low-income housing credits. Although there are still a few details to sort out here, including what actually is the equity method of accounting. Does it include proportional amortization, for example? And then there's also some some questions about how the joint venture rules play in here as well. So, Gary, you can see some positive developments on low income housing, but still some details to sort out here. And of course, the benefit of the above interpretation, assuming it is accepted, is that it only helps in respect of credits that come through equity-accounted entities. It doesn't help at all for what we were talking about earlier in the case of R&D credits and fidget deductions.
0: So I'm sure many taxpayers will be happy to hear about these developments, but as you point out, it's certainly not a cure-all. Most tax credits in the U.S. aren't generated through equity investments. A big one would be the R&D credit. Marcus, are there any proposals that would save general
1: business credits? Not really, no. Uh, There has been some chatter about converting U.S. credits to being refundable and getting that above-the-line treatment I mentioned earlier, but I haven't found anyone that thinks that this is viable given the cost of doing so and also the optics of direct government payments to large corporations seems challenging politically. The administration's most recent Green Book proposal said that when another jurisdiction adopts the undertax profits rule, the proposal would ensure that taxpayers continue to benefit from tax credits and other incentives that promote U.S. jobs and investment. But I don't think anyone really knows how to interpret that or or what that means. In more recent statements, some senior Treasury officials have said that they are committed to working with Congress to explore other ways to protect U.S. incentives that promote jobs and investment. But no concrete solutions that I am aware of have emerged. Instead, Treasury seems to be now emphasizing that only a small number of taxpayers will be affected by the under-tax profits rule, saying that only 0.02% of U.S. corporations are above the Pillar 2 thresholds as a percentage of U.S. corporate returns. So unfortunately, I think the answer to your question is no, there are no concrete proposals to save general business credits. The most likely outcome, in my view, is that Congress will eventually be forced to implement a domestic top-up tax that is calibrated just right to collect the top-up tax that would otherwise be payable to another country under the under-taxed profits rule. But that may take some time to be implemented. And, and just noting here that this is hardly a solution for multinationals. It just means that they would be paying more tax to the United States under a domestic top-up tax rather than to other jurisdictions under the under-taxed profits rule.
0: So, non-refundable credits are just one way that U.S. multinationals can find themselves below the 15% globe ETR. Kevin, what are some other globe rules that could reduce ETR in surprising ways?
2: Thanks, Gary. The issues surrounding non-refundable credits have certainly garnered a lot of attention, and a related issue we are seeing a lot lately relates to a different type of credit, the foreign tax credit. And I think A lot of the peculiar results are popping up because the U.S. foreign tax credit regime is so unlike other regimes used in foreign countries to mitigate against double taxation. So under the Pillar 2 rules, there's a a rule that says when you're computing your ETR in the year you use a foreign tax credit, you don't take into account any deferred tax asset you might have up on your local financial statements in respect of that credit. And so the net effect of that is, is that in a year that you use foreign tax credits against a certain type of income, you're going to have a subtraction in your ETR for the credits you take against the U.S. tax on that income. And even though for financial statement purposes you might have the reversal of a deferred tax asset when you use those credits, you won't have one to help you in your ETR calculation for globe rules. And so where that gets us is when you use foreign tax credits. In a year after you've earned them, well, the foreign taxes paid themselves won't be in your numerator because they were paid in a previous year, but the subtraction for using them will be. And so that separation of when you pay the foreign taxes versus when you use them can result in very differing ETRs over years, particularly very low ETRs in the year you you end up using them. If you are in a situation where the reason you're using them is because of something like an overall domestic loss or a separate limitation loss, that is where a loss from in one country or in one basket prevented you from using the taxes in the prior year, and you're now recapturing your ability to use them in a later year. That big reduction for using those for those foreign taxes, we're seeing drive ETRs well below the 15% rate, surprisingly, even though over time and looking at the gap ETR, the company is paying tax at a rate of well over 15%. Another related issue we're seeing is in respect of losses, where we have entities that are flow-through for U.S. purposes, but viewed as corporation for for the rest of the world purposes, so namely a hybrid entity. So what you should, I guess, keep in your mind is a DRE, an entity that is corporate in the country, it is formed in but checked open to be a complete flow-through in the U.S. So what happens here is that the globe rules view that DRE, as a separate entity, even though it might be checked through for U.S. tax. From book perspective, it's a separate entity, and it's an entity whose income would be assigned to the jurisdiction in which it's operating in. So if you have a situation where the U.S. holds a disregarded entity, and that disregarded entity is in a different country and operates in a loss, that loss is, as you know, going to flow through on your U.S. tax return and reduce your amount of taxes paid. And when you get to do your ETR calculation for the U.S., well, you start in your numerator with the current tax expense, which will be net of the effects of that flow-through loss from the other country. But your denominator will not be net of that loss. Your denominator will show your income in the U.S., and that loss that flowed through will be assigned to its own country, the country in which the entity is formed. So you have this impact where your numerator is shrunk on account of the loss flowing through from the other country, but the denominator isn't, driving you well below 15%, even though, again, taxpayers paying well over 15% of US tax on its income on a combined basis. And the rules have a fix for that when this arises in the context of a permanent establishment, because so many countries around the world are, you know, have permanent establishments, so the issue is spotted. However, the rules don't apply in the case of what, for U.S. tax practitioners' perspective, is the same as a PE or branch, that is a a checked open DRE, but instead a hybrid entity. So there are no fix in the rules for this situation. So it's another example like the foreign tax credit regime where certain particularities of the U.S. tax system that are very different from those found in the rest of the world don't seem to have been taken into account as much in the Pillar Two rules, and as we're doing more and more modeling with taxpayers, they are producing some surprising results. Thank you,
0: Kevin and Marcus, for joining me today and and sharing your valuable insights on the Pillar Two rules. There's obviously a lot to unpack here, and we have only begun to scratch the surface of the complexities that taxpayers will have to navigate with respect to the Pillar Two Globe rules. On our next episode, we'll continue this journey by exploring the M&A implications of Pillar 2. We'll discuss whether it still makes sense for U.S. companies to make 338G elections with respect to their targets. Is there a preference for asset deals versus stock deals? And how might the transition rule impact transactions that are occurring today? So please stay tuned for future episodes of KPMG's Inside International Tax to stay up to speed on these and other recent developments. Until our next episode, take care.